Well, I have some good news for you today, my friends. I have the inside scoop. In case you haven't heard, I have it on good authority that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, defeated all the powers of darkness, and he holds the keys of hell and death. I'm your host, Ian Brown, and welcome back to the Bible School Podcast. Today on the show, we are going to tackle Jeremiah 29 11, which is a surprisingly controversial verse of scripture. And this is something you may or may not know about, but a quick internet search of Jeremiah 29 11, like if you just type that into Google, it will bring up a plethora of articles and blog posts and YouTube videos of people railing against the typical way people use this verse. And the critics have a fair point. I'm not going to pretend like they don't. The critics have a fair point. This actually has to do with hermeneutics, which was our topic of discussion in the episode previous to this one. And if you listen to that last episode on hermeneutics, Hopefully you remember our big takeaway was that good Bible interpretation must take into account authorial intent. Good Bible interpretation must take into account authorial intent. In other words, what did the author intend to say and what did it mean to the original audience? And a lot of people ignore this. They ignore the authorial intent when it comes to Jeremiah 29, 11. And this verse has pretty much become like the high school and college graduation verse. Now, here's what it says. Most of you probably know it by heart. But before we go too much further, I think it'll be good to actually read the verse just so we're all on the same page and have it fresh in our minds. This is out of the NIV. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. These words go on greeting cards and buttons and magnets and stickers. And a lot of times we give these items to our high school or college graduates and tell them that they'll get into the best university or they'll find a great internship or they'll make it into the career of their choice because of Jeremiah 29 11. Or this is an, a, a verse that uh, we also use to comfort people who have gone through like a breakup in a, a romantic dating relationship. You know, it doesn't work out with the guy or the gal. And we tell our friends and our loved ones, hey, God has a plan. He has plans to prosper you. Like, don't let the breakup get you down. God has plans to prosper you. He has plans to give you a hope and a future. And you'll find that special someone. You'll, you'll find that spouse. And this is what the, the controversy surrounding this verse is all about. The tendency in pop Christianity, I guess you could say, is to isolate this verse away from its context and then read ourselves into it without any regard for the original meaning. And I see people do this all the time. They do it on social media, even in church, which is a shame because doing that is... An abuse of the text. That's a harsh word, abuse, but it really 
fits. It, it is an abuse of the text. Not only is it bad hermeneutics, but it can lead to disappointment and bitterness toward God should things go wrong. Now, I'm not saying that this verse does not apply to us in some way, because it certainly does. That's something a lot of theological snobs say whenever people bring up Jeremiah 29, 11. Oh, this verse doesn't apply to us today. Like, are you a Jew living in exile? No? Okay, well, Jeremiah 29, is not for you, right? That's a, a very theologically snobbish position. And I'm not saying that. I think there is some application of Jeremiah 29, 11 for the people of God today. What I am saying, or what I'm trying to do in this episode, is correct what I believe is a misapplication and abuse of this verse. The prophet Jeremiah, as he gave this word from the Lord, didn't have anyone's breakup from their, uh, you know, their dating relationship in mind. He didn't have anyone's post-college career in mind. This verse was given in a certain context, and we must seek to understand this context if we are to faithfully interpret and apply this verse to our lives today. However, before we dig into that, let me say thanks so much for being here. If you enjoy the show, do me a favor and hit the subscribe or the follow button on whatever platform you happen to be listening on. And for all you iPhone people out there, if you really want to do me a solid, then leave a rating and a review on iTunes and Apple Podcasts. That helps out tremendously. This podcast is my passion project. I love making it for you guys. I love producing this content. And I am so grateful to be able to play a role in helping you understand the Bible and think well about the scriptures. And part of that, part of thinking well about the scriptures, to reiterate what we've already talked about, is understanding the context of a scripture and avoiding our human tendency to read our own meanings into the text. Rather, we must draw out the meaning intended by the Holy Spirit and the biblical author. And in the case of Jeremiah 29, 11, the context of this verse, historically speaking, is the Babylonian exile. And this is something we've talked about at some length in previous episodes of the show, but basically, just to refresh your memory, the exile is one of the most important events in the biblical story. It was the means God used to judge the Jewish people for their sins. They were worshiping the pagan gods. They were engaging in rampant sexual sins. They were mistreating the poor. They were ignoring the orphans and the widows. They were also ignoring the Sabbath. They weren't keeping the Sabbath, which was a very, very big deal, and they were not repentant for it. They persisted in their sins despite the warnings of the prophets. Jesus actually references this when he laments over the city of Jerusalem in Matthew's gospel, chapter 23, verse 27. It's a, a particularly traumatic in the King James Version, which I really like, so I'm going to quote it out of that. Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, 
and ye would not. If you read through the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews, the by faith chapter, some people call it, other people call it the hall of faith or the hall of fame of faith, as it goes through the highlights of the Old Testament heroes, you'll get to a point where the author starts writing about how some of these men and women of God, these men and women of faith, they suffered jeers, the scripture says. They suffered flogging and chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were killed by the sword. They went about destitute. And some were even sawed in two, right? That's especially gruesome. In fact, there's an ancient Judeo-Christian tradition which holds that the way the prophet Isaiah died uh, was as a martyr, and he was sawed in half by King Manasseh, who was the son of King Hezekiah. Uh, the Jewish tradition comes from the Talmud, and the Christian tradition comes from a first century text, an extra biblical book. It's not in the canon of scripture, but it's a, a very, very early book, first century AD, called The Ascension of Isaiah. And the stories from these two sources about Isaiah's death, they differ from each other in some details, but both of them involve the prophet dying uh, by a saw, right? It's uh, especially macabre. Whether it's true or not, I have no idea. Like I said, the sources of this tradition are extra-biblical. They aren't found in the text of Scripture itself. However, it's a good illustration for how the Israelites treated God's prophets. They, they did not treat the prophets of God very well. Another good example is from the book of Jeremiah itself. Uh, Jeremiah tries warning the people about the impending doom, the impending invasion by the Babylonians, and the people weren't having it. They didn't want to listen to the prophet's warnings, and they persecute him. They persecute Jeremiah. At one point, he's chained up and thrown into a dungeon with mud up to his waist. Elijah, the prophet Elijah, and his precarious relationship with Ahab and Jezebel is another example that comes to mind. And the way God's prophets were treated compounded on the people's sins. And it got to a point where justice just had to be meted out. If God truly was holy and righteous, which he was and which he is, then Israel's sins got to a point where they had to answer for them. They just did. And God's chosen way of holding the Israelites accountable was for this foreign army, the Babylonians, to come in, destroy the city walls, sack the city, destroy the temple, and then forcefully relocate a large swath of the people out of their homeland and back to Babylon. This was a very, very traumatic event for the Jewish people. It was a mental and spiritual injury, the effects of which last to this day, really. So you can imagine how acute the pain must have felt for the people during the time it was happening. In fact, we can get a sense of this pain, actually, from the scripture itself, from the Psalms, uh, from the 137th Psalm in particular. The words of this psalm might be familiar, familiar to you from a source outside of the scriptures. 
If you're a fan of old reggae music, then you might know that the words of Psalm 137 were adapted into a reggae song by a group called the Melodians. And then later on, it was covered and popularized by another reggae group called Boney M. Really good song, by the way. Really, really fun. I prefer the Boney M version personally. But contrary to popular belief, these words aren't original to a reggae group. They come from the Bible, from the scriptures, from Psalm 137, which I will read to you right now. Once again, reading out of the King James Version, I think it does the best job out of all the English translations of preserving the poetic nature of the original Hebrew here. Quote, By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps upon the willows in the midst thereof, for there they that carried us away captive required of us a song. And they that wasted us required of us mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. If I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. If I prefer not Jerusalem above my chief joy. Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it even to the foundation thereof. O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed, happy shall he be that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stone. That is the end of the psalm there. It's very short, kind of ends on a, a bit of an intense note there. Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. It's very uh, dark, to say the least. But it, it gives you a good sense of the emotional state of the Jewish people at that time. As I read the words of this communal lament, really, it's a, a, a lament, I hope you were able to get a sense of the collective pain and trauma of the Jewish people in exile? How can we even sing the songs of the Lord while we're in a strange land? They couldn't even bring themselves to do that. This is the historical context of Jeremiah 29 11. Exile, pain, trauma, anguish. Which leads me to the literary context of this verse. The literary context meaning the portions of scripture that come before and after Jeremiah 29, 11. In Jeremiah 28, the prophet Hananiah has just had a judgment pronounced on him by Jeremiah. Hananiah was prophesying that God would break the yoke of the Babylonians and restore the people back to their land within two years' time. And as you can imagine... It was a pretty popular message among the people. They were ecstatic to hear it. Only two years. Wow, that's like, we can handle this. This is good. The only problem was that it was not true at all. Hananiah was presuming to speak for God, but he was really just prophesying out of his own head. And turns out that was a pretty big no-no, yeah? 
and listen to what happens at the end of Jeremiah 28. Okay, this is NIV now. Then the prophet Jeremiah said to Hananiah the prophet, Listen, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you, yet you have persuaded this nation to trust in lies. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I am about to remove you from the face of the earth. This very year you are going to die because you have preached rebellion against the Lord. In the seventh month of that same year, Hananiah the prophet died. Once again, pretty intense. The lesson there, I suppose, is uh, don't presume to speak for God when you're actually not. Right? Bad things happen if you do that. Don't presume to speak for God and then just prophesy out of your own head because uh, it's not good, to say the least. Jeremiah says, don't listen to Hananiah because he doesn't know what in the world he's talking about. Jeremiah tells the people that they will not be restored in two years' time. It's actually going to be more like 70 years. Therefore, they should do their best to settle down, build houses, raise their families, and even pray for the peace and the prosperity of Babylon since they'll be residing there for the foreseeable future. And that's what the opening of Jeremiah 29 is talking about. It's talking about all of that from chapter 28 through the beginning of chapter 29. And it's at this point we get to verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. God speaks these words through his prophet to a people in the midst of trauma and pain and exile. Despite the fact that they brought the pain and anguish they were going through upon themselves, God reassured them that they were not forsaken, and he issued them a promise. A promise not to rescue them immediately, though they might prefer that, but a promise to take care of them in the midst of their trials. God promised them that no matter the current situation, he would work to prosper his covenant people. And this, I believe, is the takeaway for us as Christians today. Jeremiah 29, 11 isn't necessarily about finding your spouse or getting into a good school, but it is about how God relates to his people. It shows us how God thinks about his people. And as the covenant people of God in Christ, it is perfectly appropriate to stand on this verse in the midst of troubled times and believe that God is with us, working to prosper us and give us a hope and a future. And that's something that seems to be in short supply these days on account of the coronavirus pandemic, the economic fallout from the pandemic, the U.S. elections, the riots, and the everything in between. People don't see much of a future. They don't see much of a reason to hope. But I'm here to tell you today to lift your eyes, as the Bible says, and fix them on Jesus. Put your faith in God. The God of Jeremiah 29:11 is still God today, and he will take care of his people in troubled times. 
which leads me to the verses that immediately follow Jeremiah 29, 11. God says that you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. Other translations will say, restore your fortunes. These verses are such an amazing reminder that even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of the longevity of suffering, God has a plan for us. And these plans are for prosperity. And we have hope for our future because of God. We shouldn't give up, but don't give up. Even as we experience difficult situations and hard times, don't give up. These things are temporal. Fix your eyes on the things that are eternal. Fix your eyes on Christ and trust in his plan. And even though we might experience false prophets like Hananiah, even though we might encounter people who presume to speak for God, but they're really just prophesying out of their own heads and they tell us things that seem too good to be true, even though we might experience that in this life, and some of us have experienced it, you know, don't be moved by those things. Trust God. Trust what he's doing. Trust that he is taking care of us because our, our hope for the future, it only comes from him. Our blessed assurance is only found in Christ. It's not found in the words of man, it's not found in your favorite politician. The assuredness of our hope is found only in Christ. And if we seek God with all our hearts, we have the confidence of knowing that he will be found by us and we will experience his love even in the midst of suffering and hard times. And that is the takeaway from Jeremiah 29.11 for Christians, relevant and for us today. All right, well, before I end this episode, I want to make an exciting announcement. We are approaching the 30th episode of the Bible Schooled podcast, and in honor of this momentous occasion, I thought it would be fun to do a question and answer episode. So if you have questions about the Bible or theology or church history, send them to me and I will do my best to answer as many as I can in the next episode. There are two ways you can submit your questions. You can send them via voice message or email, and I will have the information for both of those in the episode description. The voice message and the email will be open for your questions for one week from this episode going live, so make sure you get them in on time. I'm looking forward to hearing all of your questions. Until the next episode, take heart, my friends, and be blessed.